Bible study this evening is in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16 and 17. Uh, we're still in that uh, subject we was in last week. The Holy of Holies. That's what the body of Christ is. That's what the church is. God help the man who takes it as something common and ordinary and unclean. Because it's where God dwells. We're in the temple of God. And when we're in the church, we are the temple of God, His dwelling place. And because we're the Holy of Holies, there's a severe warning that we failed to get to last week, the last statement in verse 17. He says, For God's temple is sacred. And that's why we read earlier uh, that God sets Himself against the local body because God sets Himself against you and me when we take the church lightly. This is God's temple. It's where He chose uh, to be, to work with Him. And, and, uh, and so we need to take on a different look at the church. There's a lot of ugly people in the church. There's a lot of people that dress funny in the church. There's a lot of strange people in the church. But that church, with all of its problems, with all of its uh, misconceptions for the moment, <coughs> is still the Holy of Holies, the dwelling place of God. It's a very sacred place. Uh, do you have that concept of the local church that you, you're a member of? That it's uh, uh, God's temple is sacred because that's what He said it is. It's sacred. Uh, the local body is sacred. Well, somebody can say you don't know about this bunch that I'm with. Well, yeah, we do. Let's see, did they have 17 things wrong with them, like Corinth, uh, that you can name? There's 17 things wrong with the Corinthian church, starting in chapter 5. I mean bad stuff, like uh, they don't even believe that uh, their dead body is going to be raised. They don't believe in the resurrection. I mean, they've got all those things wrong with them uh, as a body. And I'm not talking about them as individuals now. Uh, the individuals may be uh, in desperate need of repentance. That's true. But how's that local body, uh, even with the guy in it uh, and with me in it, it's sacred, even though it's got me in it and you. It, the church is still sacred. <clears throat> That's why everybody needs to be a member of the local body because it's the sacred place. <clears throat> you know, a lot of people like to be members at large. In other words, they're never a part of the sacred place. They may be uh, 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 sacred, but they're out, out there all by themselves and it is good for and it is not good for man to be alone that's why God made uh, 
the woman was because he said it's not good that man be alone. And it's not. And so there's some people who are aloof from the church. They just drift in whenever they want to. They don't feel a part of it because they don't realize how sacred the church is. And they're always gossiping and carrying on about different ones' problems and how fickle the church may be. Well, look at Corinth. There's 17 things wrong with it. And look at the dignified position that Paul gave it in his speech. You're the church of God. And here in verse 16 and 17, uh, it's his temple, his dwelling place, and it's sacred. And anybody that messes with the sacredness of the church, God will mess with him. Uh, uh, so uh, it matters not what the local body is like where you are. Uh, get connected to it because it's sacred. Our work and, uh, and, and work and build in it don't tear it and, and criticize it. That's, uh, I heard a fellow preach one time about members of the church. There's the Taylor family. There's the commentator, the dictator, the agitator, the sweet tater, and it has all the taters in it. Well, there's always those commentators that want to elevate themselves by talking down some brother that's got a problem. Uh, it's true that maybe that brother needs to repent but it's none of your business it's none of your business because we're God's building and so uh, uh, our job is to be uh, a part of the church recognize the sacred nature of the church as verse 17 says uh, and just work and build in it don't tear and criticize it. The Lord's not too interested in your tearing down bricks. He's not too happy with that. And that's why His wrath will be against those who do that. Tear down and destroy. He'll send a fire to take care of that, won't He? A fire of judgment. Uh, that is verse 17. And you are the temple he says you plural uh, are that sacred temple now I would have felt pretty, uh, pretty uh, so good just after reading that particularly if I was that guy living with his father's wife that had just committed <coughs> here's a fellow that they all looked down on him. He needed to repent, and he did. But still and all, he, was, he would hear the same thing as Paul wrote this to him also, that he was a member of the sacredness of the church. He was sacred. And so nobody will have fellowship with him until Paul writes them and says, Okay, you withdraw from him. Now you have fellowship with him after he's repented. Uh, I didn't have you withdraw from him, Paul would say, to get him off the wall. Uh, I had you withdraw from him 
that he would know if he didn't repent, he'd be off the wall. Now he's repented. And how dare you not embrace him and kiss him and give him a robe and a ring and shoes and let him eat the fat banquet calf. Uh, isn't that God's saying? Uh, that's what I'm doing. Why aren't you doing that? Uh, don't you think it's right to in, uh, imitate God? The church of Christ uh, through the world definitely needs to know it's the sacred place. It's not just an ordinary place. And we're not talking about the building. We're talking about the people. They're very sacred. In Romans 8 and verse 1, there's no condemnation to them that are in Christ. Oh, but they got a lot of things that we can point at. We can see wrong in their life. That's true. But aren't we all uh, in influxing or working and God's working with us to work these things out? And as long as we're willing to work them out, we're sacred. We're the sacred church. And so, uh, we, along with this fellow that was living with his father's wife that repented, uh, uh, need to know it's the sacred place. It's the place where God accepts sacrifices. It's the place where God smells incenses from us. Now, don't get the building. Get, get rid of the building out of your mind. We're not talking about the building. We're talking about the people. And in the people of God, there's where God accepts sacrifices. There's where God smells incense. There's where God's blood covers the mercy seat. It's where judgment seat has become the mercy seat. Uh, the veil has been rent asunder so you and I can walk right in into the presence of God. And Christ is entered into that holy place in heaven, and we have an anchor there too. He's gone as our forerunner. The Bible uses that word to speak of Christ being a forerunner, one who is, has gone where we are going to go in the same manner. <laughs> and we'll go in clothed with his righteousness, not ours. Uh, so I'm in the bit in the Bible, aren't I? Uh, in all these statements. Think of all those holy place thoughts and then transfer it to that bunch of, of uh, nerds where you worship. And so the local body with all of its problems and all of its sins and all of its shortcomings and all of its doctrinal error and all of its legalism and all those things we like to set uh, as holy judges of, they are sacred. They got problems. The church of Corinth was sacred. They had 17 major problems beginning in chapter 5. And so that's one of the things that we need to desperately learn. 
to appreciate the Lord's church and the members in it. And if I can aid you and you can aid me, help me, help me, don't talk against me. Don't talk me down. Don't gossip about me. Point to me as though I was ugly. Help me, and I'll help you. And because we recognize the sacredness of the body of Christ, we are the body of Christ. <clears throat> so there in 1 Corinthians 3, let's continue our look at Paul's picture of the local church and the power that God has made the local church to be. Let's go back to verse 5 and remind ourselves of what we've studied. The idea in chapter 3, verse 5 through 9, uh, and we need this in chapter 4, and the latter part of chapter 3, the church is God's workmanship. We already studied that. The leaders are only servants. And Paul talked about that in several categories. He talked about them as servants, that is, D-I-A-K-O-N-I-A uh, in verse 5. Now, that's a high-class servant. It's not a slave. Uh, normally, it's a paid servant. This uh, Dikonos, or however you pronounce that. A Dikonos would keep you, uh, keep your uh, books for you. He'd wait on the table at the restaurant. Uh, he would be involved in the different areas of activity in human life, but he would be paid for his service. He would be more of a hired hand than he would be a slave, according to the definition of this word in the Greek that's used here. We also saw that they were channels uh, we were ministers, uh, Paul declares, through which Christ came to you. So the ministers are merely channels through their pipelines through which the Word of God comes to men and women. Uh, you need to view ourselves as channels through whom Jesus flows. That's all Paul declared himself to be, a channel. Uh, nothing special. A servant. A channel. Uh, we're not so much representatives of Christ as we are channels through which Jesus comes to people. Now, if I understand that concept, then I'll quit believing that I'm all that uh, that essential and all that big guy or anything else. I'll lose that big guy attitude. And that's what they got at Corinth. They got people that's puffed up one against another. They, they got division. And that's Paul, until he gets through chapter 4, he's going to be dealing with this problem of division that he introduced in, in chapter 1. Uh, so I'm just the pipe, uh, Paul's saying, that God uses to bring Jesus into their view. And that's why Paul is determined to know nothing among them 
but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's how he began chapter 2. Because he views himself as merely the channel through whom Jesus and the cross flows. Now, that takes away a lot of our pride, doesn't it? It certainly does. Yeah, if properly understood. But it also gives us security. Uh, it takes me out of the place of being responsible for your understanding. And so I'm not responsible for your understanding the word. I'm only responsible to see the word is put there in an understandable way. That's my job. What you do with it is up to you. I'm just the channel through which the understanding of Jesus flows. You know, if you're not really interested in something, it ain't going to. You can listen to the best orator in the world that it can speak and explain things so clear, and you'll miss the whole thing. You miss the whole thing. Until you get that humility that brings you under the hand of God, and that's what Peter said in 1 Peter 5, verse 6. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time. That exalting comes in due time. But there's that submission that lowers yourself and your pride and your... Uh, your arrogance of yourself as though you were somebody uh, until that's out of the way you're not going anywhere in the kingdom of God you're not you can eat a ton of crackers and drink 50 gallons of grape juice it ain't gonna it ain't gonna matter humility is the key word Jesus being our example, what did he do? There was two main humilities in his life. In Philippians 2, 5, he was on equality with God. He was God. By him all things were made. Many verses declare that. John 1, 1, and uh, Hebrews 2, Hebrews 1, many places declares that fact. So, Jesus humbled himself in heaven to become a man. And then as a man, he humbled himself to the task of that man, the cross. And so humility is the name of this game, if you want to look at it that way. There's no place for the arrogant. There's no place for this haughtiness. Because the greatest minister that you can think of all he is in actuality is like Paul declared him to be, himself to be, merely a servant, a pipeline through which Jesus flows to his audience. And then he said they were farmhands. They're not only a pipeline, a channel, but they're farmhands. Paul said, I planted and Apollos watered in verse 6. Remember that? Uh, so Paul's saying, I was just hired by the owner to work in this field, and therefore, again, I'm not responsible for what grows. I'm only responsible for what seed is sown and watered. Uh, 
that's the seed is that, that the seed is planted and that the seed is encouraged to grow. But only God can cause it to grow. Isn't that what Paul said in verse 6? He said, I planted, Apollos watered. We're to, uh, don't be puffed up one against another. Don't be calling yourself, well, I'm a Paul and another group. Well, I'm of Cephas. Uh, Paul is saying, uh, <clears throat> one plants, another waters, but God gives the increase. And so he described himself as a servant or a channel. And now he described himself in verse 6 as a farmhand. He planted and Paul's water. But then he finished out his statement that only God could give the increase. And one of the main things we need to see is that we are rewarded. We talk about uh, leaders are only servants. Well, uh, what do you do with servants when they work? You reward them, and that's verse 8. <clears throat> so we can expect rewarded. We don't need to be embarrassed when we're rewarded because it says, for the laborer is worthy of his hire. Uh, Hire that is withheld from the laborer was one of the main reasons that the northern nation nation of Israel was commanded, uh, com, uh, condemned in the minor prophets. They kept back what uh, uh, was deserving from their service. The Lord never does that. Uh, as Paul says here, each is rewarded by the Lord. He rewards you. And we are fellow workers in verse 9. Not only of God, but also of one another. We're fellow workers. We're not fellow condemners. Nobody's made you a judge. Nobody's given you a marshal's badge to enforce anything. You're to preach the truth in love, as Paul said in Ephesians. And then we talked about the fact that God is the owner. Uh, we looked at Isaiah 28 and, and also in 61, if you remember. And Paul's statement in Romans 8 that makes it plain that God is working in his vineyard. We are not in this thing alone. A lot of people assume that because they don't see the church going anywhere. They move into a community, let's say Benton City, and they see it's just dead. In their estimation, in their conclusion, what they see there is deadness. Well, <clears throat> got one of two alternatives. They can either go out and say, well, I ain't going there no more because of this and that and the other. You know, and you can become a judge and you can condemn the Holy of Holies, the place that's very sacred called the church, the temple of God. That's what Paul said, know ye not that you're the temple of God, the Spirit of God dwells in you. If any man defiles the temple of God, and he's talking to the false teachers, anyone comes in teaching another doctrine, God will take care of him. God will destroy him. He won't tolerate that. 
<laughs> so we're not alone in this thing. But So members can come to a congregation and they can leave condemning it, or they can roll up their sleeves with a smile, a smile of love for children that don't know their right hand from their left hand. You remember that's a statement God made about Nineveh. Remember that? Oh, a lot of us are, are uh, uh, Jonas. We want to set up in the east side church Christ on the hillside and watch the destruction of these people. God's going to get them, and I'm anxious for him to destroy them. He sat up there waiting for 40 days. And God spared him, remember that? And God came to him and said, Is it right that you more concerned over gourds than you are the souls of men. Here's a whole nation of people that don't know their right hand from their left hand. Well, the average member of the church goes away complaining. Yeah, they just dumbing wrong. Ain't it? Boy, they don't know nothing. Well, how about rolling up your sleeves being you think you know something and pitching in and trying to clean up the mess and add a little bit of savor to the family of God. If you have something to offer, doesn't Paul say in Romans 12 to offer it? And we can make a difference if we think there's a difference that is lacking. <clears throat> so God is active in his field just as we're active in his field. He needs us and we need him. He needs us. Now, the only reason he does is maybe totally not understandable, but from Genesis to Revelation, God is saying the one thing, your son to me. Uh, doesn't, father, doesn't a father need a son? He needs us to labor in his vineyard. He sends forth his sons into his vineyard to work. Remember the parable Jesus told, Son, work today in my vineyard. That's what Jesus said in a parable. And that's a pretty good four-point lesson right there. In fact, somebody might want to write those down and maybe someday build a sermon on it because there is a fantastic sermon in those four words. Son, number one. Work, number two. Today, number three, in my vineyard, number four. There's a very simple sermon right there, but very profound. Well, you see, that's what this is saying here in 1 Corinthians. We have the glory of being the co-workers with God. And we build on this foundation Paul talked about here in the third chapter, that no man can lay but the apostles, that foundation, which is Christ Jesus. And we build on that. That's all we do. The second point uh, we've studied with this idea of our labor with God is man's workmanship. So God has a part in it, and we have a part in it. Uh, that's the next little section of Paul's epistle. Uh, is, is he talking about the fact that we are the ones that are building 
in chapter 3, verse 10 through 15, in the kingdom, we don't own the building of God, but this just strengthens the idea of servant. But here is a different figure. In the first figure was the idea of an agricultural uh, pursuit. Paul planted, Apollos watered. Whether it's a wheat field or a vineyard or whatever you're doing there, the church is God's tilled ground in that figure. And here in the church is God's building under construction. That's the emphasis in chapter 3, verse 10 through 15. It's not a finished building. It's a building under construction. Now, it's absolutely true that we're complete in terms of our salvation and our deliverance from sin. That's true. But we're complete in the fact that we're humble enough to want to walk with God as He leads us through life and teaches us. And so it's under construction, and it always will be. Now, why am I saying that? Because... uh, don't we sometimes judge the church for not being what it ought to be? Oh, they haven't got up to the point I think they ought to be. Well, so what? Again, you've got a choice. You can either walk away with your nose in the air like you're somebody and you're uh, too good to be a part of the temple of God in that area, and, and which is the Holy of Holies, or you can roll up your sleeves and and go in with a smile of love and change it. But it's too easy to be a critic. It's, we like to criticize. I haven't figured out what the big attraction is, but we do. It builds us up and lowers everybody up that we talk about. Well, uh, God's not through with the church yet. It's influxing all the time. You got new members coming in. You got uh, you got maturity levels of different degrees all through the congregation. And we're working together as we preach and teach the love of God and the word of God, the will of God, the way of God. <coughs> <coughs> If you're not pleased with me, be patient. God's not through with me yet. Maybe we could understand one another a little better looking at one another that way. And that will be true the last moment of my life. Uh, Using myself as an example. I will not be what satisfies you. Uh... But the beautiful thing is, I am what satisfies God. I'm His Son. I got problems? Oh, yeah. Me and Him's working on them. And personally, I'd appreciate it if you'd step out of the way and let me and God work on it. But there's always the going at it like that. And we don't, because we don't see the beauty of the temple of God. And the Corinthians didn't either. That's why Paul said, 
Know ye not that you're the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? And you need to understand anybody that defiles the temple of God, him shall God destroy. They needed to know that. And so I'm under construction. And so are you. I will never be finished this side of Jesus' return. Never will. Then we will be finished, for I'll get that body like his. Now the work is a building work then. Not a work that you can sit back and say, that's done. Because it never will be done. Uh, you will never be able to say, it's finished. Until you're on a cross a moment before death, as Jesus was. And then you can say, your part is finished. But the work won't be finished. Jesus began. Uh, Jesus did not finish. He finished the act of dying. But Jesus began to do and to teach, it says. In Colossians 1, verse 24, Paul said, I fill up on my part that which is lacking in the uh, uh, afflictions of Christ. Is there some lacking there in the, in, the, in the church? Yes. It's a perfect church. It's without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Now that's the declaration of many places, especially Ephesians 1 and verse 4. But nevertheless, even in its imperfection as individuals, it's working and growing and maturing as all of them walk with God. But that walk is an individual walk with God. The fellowship that we have is first with God. And because of that fellowship with God, we have fellowship with one another. It's kind of like working for Bechtel. You can't fire me if, if you're working for Bechtel and I can't fire you. We're just workmen. Bechtel can fire both of us. But you can't and I can't. And we need to learn that in the church. Our fellowship is walking with God. That's what 1 John 1, 7 is talking about. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another that one with another is you with God, me with God. And because of that relationship that's vertical, we have this horizontal relationship of, of being able to say we both work for Bechtel. <clears throat> and Jesus told the apostles, uh, what I have done you will do, and greater things than these will you do. Can you imagine us doing greater things than Jesus? That's what he said. That's what he said. Don't be afraid of what he said. That's what he said. <coughs> greater things because he said, I go to the Father. Uh, in other words, because I lived and got through with my part and go to the Father. You can do greater things than I do. We have our part to do. What was Jesus' part? Did he preach the gospel of obedience? No. 
Why did he come to this world? It needed a savior. So what was his mission? You see, he was, Galatians 4, 4 says that he was in the fullness of the time God sent forth his son born under the law. He was answerable to the law. That's why the Jews hounded him all the time in their misconception about the law. Uh, they was always hounding him. Your disciples are violating the law because they're eating with unwashed hands. Your, your disciples are picking corn on the Sabbath day. And Jesus had to explain to them that they were uh, teaching for doctrine the commandments of men in the 17th chapter of Matthew. But he was under the law. He could not teach the new covenant because he was under the old covenant. He was under a different covenant. He was answerable to that covenant. They could have killed him if they could have caught him violating that law, that covenant. They could have killed him before his time. And so Jesus' main mission was to do what? Prove that he was the creator. Divinity. And once he proved that, then he chose twelve men. John fifteen verse sixteen. He said, You didn't you men didn't choose me, I chose you. Verse twenty seven he told them what he chose them for to receive the Spirit and that would guide him into all the truth. You mean Jesus didn't declare all the truth? That's exactly correct. He did not. He left it with those men to do that. He said it's expedient in John 16 that I go to the Father because the Spirit won't come until I leave and I'll send Him back to you that will guide you into all the truth. And so the apostles and you and I do greater things than Jesus, the work that Jesus done. His mission was to prove he was a son of God, and he done that, didn't he? John, when he wrote his gospel, <clears throat> he waits till he gets to the end of the book to tell you why he wrote the book. And in John 20, verse 30 and 31, he tells you, Truly many other signs did Jesus in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing you might have life in His name. And so why did John write the Gospel? As a Gospel of belief to prove Jesus to be the Son of God, the Creator of the universe. So... <clears throat> That was Jesus' mission, to prove who he was, the Savior of the world, uh, the Creator. And then the apostles were to uh, speak the Spirit's message as the Spirit revealed itself to them. Alright, so they're in, they've done a greater work than Jesus did. Because he told them very clearly, greater works than these that I do shall ye do. Now that doesn't say we're greater. It says the thing before us are greater. The things that's before us. We've got a, uh, a, 
a world to preach to? And how does uh, he preach to the world? Through us. And so Jesus is alive through us, isn't he? He speaks through us. Not miraculous. He doesn't. It's not miraculous. But as I study the word and dispel it like a pipeline does, or like working in a vineyard, uh, planting and watering, uh, that gets the job done. Uh, how does how does the Lord build through us? Uh, the beginning is that foundation that Paul said that he laid. Uh, the materials are lasting and temporary, and we don't determine which they are. We just determine where they are. Our work is to determine that they are on the wall as we build the church of the Lord. God's work is to determine whether they are gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, or stubble that we've already looked at in Paul's message here. <clears throat> so don't give a thought to it. Just be careful how you build and not judge what you build because God will take care of that. God will judge that. That's his business. Uh, there's the testing of it in verse 13 to 15. Uh, he will test it by trial, by temptation, by trouble. And that's how the Lord tests our work. And so man's workmanship is to build on the foundation of what he finds at hand. And then God makes a test of that work. And so when I find myself like in Benton City, I'm dealing with what's at hand, the material that's here. And I start with that. And I'm merely a pipeline that speaks of the love of God and uh, the salvation of God, the Word of God, the will of God, the way of God. What you do with it, you can turn out to be wood, hay, or stubble. It's going to be burned up in the, in the fire of judgment. But I'll be saved because it's not my job to see the, to your salvation. It's my job to preach the Word. And the Word, God gives the increase. That's what Paul said earlier. And suppose that you labored all of your life and everything you built got burned up, but you endured the fire. You'd be what? Well, you'd be saved, wouldn't you? Uh, that's what Paul said in verse 15. What man also, uh, what man also himself shall be saved or, or that man, excuse me, also himself should be saved through fire. So you're going to be tried too, aren't you? <laughs> so <clears throat> can I lose all of my work and be saved in our success-oriented society? Well, it don't go along with the colleges, does it? Uh, where we preach a uh, prosperity uh, prosperity gospel and the successful judgment rather than just building and letting the judgment reside with God and so that's all we do
we build, we leave the judgment up to God. He's the God that's going to judge you. We've never preached a sermon on how precious we really are. Because we have a concept that uh, when we was born into the world because of the billions of people that's being born maybe every day, or millions anyway, we just assume, well, it just happens. No, it doesn't. No, when you make a study of God and His uh, His surveillance and care of this creation, you were a tree that was planted by God in this world. You wasn't an accident. God told Jeremiah, I knew thee the, uh, in chapter 1 of Jeremiah, I knew thee the night thou was conceived in thy mother's womb. God was right there. He's the giver of life. You wouldn't have life except to give it to you. You're very precious. Even, well, <clears throat> if I go out here and find a bunch of rock that's got gold in it, it's very precious to me. But only the gold. What am I going to do with that rock? I'm going to work with it through a, refer a refinery and I'm going to render off the dross and keep the gold. And that's the way life is. God put you here and had a purpose for you being here or you wouldn't be here. And he's anxious for you to grow and learn and develop and walk with him. And he has built a world that's going to kick you in the face a few times to get your attention. We call it the two before of life. Because like the writer said in Proverbs, it's a sore travail that God has put man to here on the earth to be just uh, to. Uh, <laughs> it's a sore travail that God has put man to here on the earth to be exercised. Thank you. Thereby. And it is. It's difficult. But it's, for, it's like boot training for a soldier. He hates it, having to undergo the severity of boot training. But when he gets on the battlefield, he looks back and he sees that that old sergeant wasn't angry with him. He was trying to make a man out of him, trying to make a soldier. And now he can stand on the battlefield successfully because of the training and developing. And that's what life is to you and me. I've had to discuss the fact with a lot of people in my lifetime as I kind of laughed about the situation. Uh, they had problems that brought tears. I had one particular guy, a big iron worker, and he apologized for the tears. He said, I don't know what's the matter with my eyes, but they're, they're just running. His wife was leaving him, and he was desperate. He even came to me to see if I couldn't help save his marriage. And I tried. But he apologized for the tears as though it was unmanly to cry. And I told him, I said, laughingly, I said, you ever wonder why God gave you those uh, tear ducks, he figured he's going to need them, and you will. 
So Paul is given some very severe warnings to these false teachers that's there at Corinth and to the brethren to see how precious they are. And rather than grouping up over here with Paul and over here with Apollos and Cephas and Christ, they need to unite together and dissolve this uh, standoffishness and learn that they're the temple of Almighty God. There we are His workmanship and also Paul and the other apostles' workmanship. Uh, so, uh, now Paul is the master builder and the other apostles. They laid the foundation. That's what Paul said. I've laid the foundation and another builds thereon. Uh, as a wise expert builder, as a wise master builder, he said, I laid the foundation and everybody else builds thereon uh, on it. Uh, we're just regular builders. We are not master builders. Paul is the master builder and so I'm just an ordinary regular builder uh, in the kingdom and Paul is the expert builder. That's why the Lord chose him to give him the spirit to guide him into all the truth because they're the ones who were commissioned to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. They were the master builders. They laid the foundation on which for 2,000 years so far we've been building on. But we're not the master builders. Uh, I think that needs to be understood because we are prone to think uh, expertly. You know, you go to college to be an expert. I heard a guy out of Arkansas, didn't have much education, but he understood what an expert is. He said X means that they were, their past, they was. And a spurt means they just shot up. Like, like a kid, you know, open his mouth when he don't know nothing. That's an expert. We just need to bring out the ordinary meaning. So what if we don't know Greek? We don't have to know Greek. <laughs> it's kind of rewarding sometimes, but we don't have to know it. So, <clears throat> in the third chapter, verse 16 and 17, uh, is a conclusion of the church being both God's handiwork and man's handiwork. And what they build together is the holy place, the temple of God. Uh, what God and man builds together is the local church. That's the most holy place in the world. It's the holy of holies. That the curtain has been torn down. So the results of God's building work and our building work our co-working together is the local church of which we're a member and a servant. And it's the holiest place on earth in spite of all that's wrong with it. Because when God gets in a place, it's holy. And since God is there, 
since we're co-workers with God, this local body, the church, with all of the things that are wrong with it, is the holiest place on earth. <clears throat> and therefore, to try to uh, attempt in any way to harm, uh, there is to face the wrath of Almighty God because it's God's holy building. It's God's abiding place. And therefore, to be harmful and uh, any criticism that Paul is going to give to these brethren must be with the intent of building up. If we have any intent of, of uh, proving somebody wrong or proving yourself right, uh, void of the loving purpose of building up, then you stand somewhat a destroyer. Now, it's in the work of God. It's the working. Uh, it's uh, the work of God. It's the workmanship of man. It is the holy of holies, and therefore it has rich possessions. And so we're going to talk about uh, now what the local church possesses, and I'm going to save that till next week because our time's up. But that'll be chapter 3, verse 18 through 23. Right here. What the church possesses. It's rich possessions. And I want you to be thinking about that this week because in the second to the last verse of that chapter, look what Paul said we possess. Well, look at verse 21. Therefore let no man glory in men, because that's what they were doing. Why? For all things are yours. That's quite a statement. We're going to have to uh, work on that, aren't we? To come to understand how all things are ours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death, you mean death is ours? Yeah in a very unique way. Life is ours in a very unique way. Are things present or things to come? All are yours. So we're going to have a discussion about how death and these things are ours. These are our possessions. And if you're Christ, then you're, uh, Christ is God's belongs to God. Anyway, we'll save that till next week. What is today? Six. Six. Six? Six. Ten six. Still 21 in it.
take care of that right now.